Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. We have Dan Salmon. Good evening. Paul Callahan. Hello. And I'm Vanessa Tolka in studio tonight. Our maxed out number of people. Tonight, how are we using emojis in online dating? I would have no clues, um, but we will have an expert in to help give us a bit of insight into what's going on generationally, how people are navigating dating communication. So stay tuned for that. Um, and also on the show tonight, uh, a few weeks ago, it was discovered that uh, some South Australian government websites had been redirecting users to a domain that was operated by the South Australian Liberal Party. Um, so we're going to speak to a senior law lecturer at Melbourne Law School for a legal perspective on the implications of mishandling uh, the general public's data. Yeah, that's a, a tangly one. It's also April Amnesty, and it's a chance to support the station if you're able to help us keep the lights on, keep the website up, keep the computer systems running. These are just personally the parts of the the station that I think of from the tech perspective, perhaps even those radio waves flowing through the air from our beautiful broadcast towers. And it's not just about the tech, it's about people. It's a special night for our show. This month, we will celebrate the 10-year anniversary of Warren Davies being part of the Byte team. Woohoo! Go Warren! Go Warren! Amazing. And he's just the sort of person who's really community-minded and thinks, I'm going to volunteer at my community radio station. I'm going to share some of the knowledge I've built up in my amazing career, um, touching over tech and marketing and comms and all sorts of you know agency-related business. And give that time back to people and also help amplify some of the amazing stuff happening in the community. And it's those sort of volunteers at the station and those sort of ties to community that make the station really important to us and to, I think, a show like us in an industry like ours that should be relevant to everyone in its community. So April Amnesty is um, a really important time where we can also help the station um, continue to exist. So if you're not someone who goes by the regular kind of subscriber routine because you're a bit you're a bit out of the box, you're a bit of a creative thinker, um, you like to play the odds with the uh, the prize pool, any any of these amazing reasons. And Warren would be great reasons to get involved, subscribe to Triple R, head to the website rrr.org.au and um, yeah, help Triple R out. Most appreciated. Absolutely. So a bit of news this evening, Dan. Yes. So um, I don't don't want to bring the mood down, but we do need to talk a little bit about Elon Musk. Um, His his latest venture, which um, has been kind of rolled out over the last couple of years, uh, Starlink, which is a satellite-based internet service, um, which aims to provide internet connectivity to regional and remote places that aren't necessarily as well uh, serviced by traditional infrastructure, is now uh, testing in Australia. Uh, We've got um, areas in northern Victoria and southern New South Wales, so if you are uh, listening from those areas, you may have uh, Starlink available. I I keep wanting to call it Skynet for some reason. (laughs) I'm not sure what what that's about. But, um, look, it's, it's... Going in, I suppose, a little bit into competition with the MBN SkyMaster satellites as well as um, 
a few others. The, well, uh, capitalism tells us that competition in that space uh, could only be a good thing. Well, yeah, well, and it's worked so well for all of us so far. <laughs> God bless your capitalism. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how great is capitalism? I hope I sounded convincing there. Um, look, it's it's um, for seven hundred dollars, you two can have a satellite dish on your roof that connects to Elon Musk's network of satellites. However, um, it's not all it's not all um, tea and roses for the guy, which you know, obviously, anything that is bad for him, I, I enjoy. Um, what well, one of the uh, Starlink satellites are very in in actually kind of today they announced that um, had come within sixty meters of a satellite from OneWeb, which is a uh, English or UK based competitor to Starlink. So I mean, sixty meters is n- not a particularly wide berth when you've got all of space to be running into. And well, obviously, it is fascinating yeah. though how many satellites there there are up in the sky around us. You can get a satellite tracker app, mm. and I'm. Promise, I'm not nerdy enough to have ever done this. <laughs> you absolutely. And, and you know, they do tier the levels of space, and you know, there's all the different reasons why you'd want to be at different levels. Mm. But it is, it's crowded up there. It is crowded up there, and that's actually one thing about this one web and space. So the, the SpaceX Starlink uh, kind of lower satellites, and so the the one web ones are higher up, and so one was trying to get up. You know, further True. further up through the atmosphere, and they they kind of had a near miss with each other. Um, it's it it's another another, and this is going to be the last thing that I talk about with Starlink. If uh, if you had looked in the sky over the last couple of days, you would have seen some chains of satellites actually kind of flying across the sky in a kind of straight line. It would have been a kind of cool thing to see. It's been a bit cloudy here, so we didn't really see it. But Starlink has something like a thousand satellites just by itself. There are tens of thousands of satellites up there that we probably need to be aware of. And these are only the ones that consumers are allowed to know about. Exactly. (laughs) GoldenEye is definitely up there somewhere. That's it. Cool. Um, Some some news on the the fight between... um, Apple and Epic Games. Lots of news, actually, on this sort of coming out. Uh, and I've been trying to kind of piece together a timeline um, without much success because it's, <laughs> because it's all sort of interconnected. Um, but one of, the, one of the, the most interesting legal things is that Apple's actually had a win um, in the court case over the removal of the Fortnite game. And it basically comes down to uh, the jurisdiction that the case is going to be fought. For, lo- for those of you who haven't been following this, um, basically... Uh, Epic Games, who make the Unreal Engine and also make Fortnite, have have kind of said that they don't want to give Apple thirty percent of their takings because as one of the uh, as one of the conditions, the app store. yeah, conditions yeah. of being in the App Store. So Apple just went fair dues uh, and took it off, took, off, <laughs> took, took, took Fortnite off the App Store. So Epic are obviously Epic are obviously fighting this, um, and they were are making the case that it should be tried in Australia. Well, and, and they do have a decent case. You know, when they started out, it, it seemed maybe a bit more reasonable that with the amount of work that Apple put into creating this platform and doing all this reviewing and what have you, that sure, you know, maybe that seemed the reasonable cost of doing business. And, you know, you know, CapEx, like infrastructure spend, that sort of thing. <laughs> but that's diminishing returns over time. And it, really, it's a, it's a big ambit claim to make 30% of someone like Epic's um, online games offerings yeah so so apple have successfully argued that the at least a stay for it to be tried uh in a in an american court rather than an australian court um so the forum isn't isn't the deal at this stage so apple's had a minor win some of the other stuff that sort of come out though is epic have basically also announced just in the past week or so um a billion dollar funding round ahead of the apple ahead of the trial this sort of the ongoing trial um 
And so Epic is now valued at $28.7 billion. Um, one of the most interesting... Like, I can well, see Dan's face why, in the studio. Why are we feeling sorry for <laughs> Epic? <laughs> sorry, please keep going. No, no, so I guess... So what's interesting about this, though, is that that includes $200 million, uh, of strategic investment from Sony... So we're actually not just talking about this kind of, you know, scrappy epic underdog fighting no, Apple. No. We're talking about these giant uh, corporations Look, it, having a Barney. I am conflicted about this because on one hand, you know, it's hard to feel too sorry for these big players. But there was real potential here that they could have a win that would have a knock-on effect for smaller players, which would have been very significant. 30% of tonnes is, you know, is lots and sure that's expensive, but they can afford it. But if you're tiny and scrappy in a startup, um, that's just money you don't have. It really squeezes small businesses and that's a problem. So the other part is that, is that yes, in an ideal world, but Epic have basically, uh, in all of these filings, it's been revealed that they're going to lose over $300 million yeah. um, on their, ga- their game store exclusive. So they're basically paying for users. Yeah. So it's not, a, it's, a, it's not a playing field from Epic's perspective as well. They're absolutely out there, yeah. like spending all of this money to acquire users so that it'll pay off in the long term yeah. so that they can be the new Apple so that they can become the new app store. So like it's, it's sort of a really fascinating sort of jostling of these giant entertainment technology companies that, that kind of plays out in popular press as like, as as you say, like scrappy underdog, Mm. like trying to make it for indies, but it's like, these are giant corporations, like with a billion dollars. And exercising their first mover advantage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Like watching two school bullies fight each other, yeah. hoping that they both lose. <laughs> yeah. So fascinating, fascinating sort of stuff when you dig into it. It really is. Hey, tiny bit of news on the Signal front. Um, it was reported a couple of weeks ago that they had added support for cryptocurrency payments. That's not exactly true. What they're doing is testing a payments feature that lets you send cryptocurrency to friends, and only one protocol of those cryptocurrencies is currently supported. So I feel like it was a bit overhyped, this news, when it came out. Um, the, the protocol they're supporting is mobile coin. So they haven't even gone with, say, Bitcoin or something <laughs> else that people may have... Um, been much more familiar with. So so that's pretty interesting. They've called it Signal Payments and it lets people um, access the wallet and its companion cryptocurrency, MOB, uh, mobile coin. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. There's a mixed range of commentary about this. Um, for some people, it's, I don't care. I wasn't planning to use this platform for that. For other people, They're just saying, look, it's a really bad idea. This is a communications app. You know, who are you? What are you trying to do? Mm. Be clear about your purpose. Can you do both of these things really well? And I think that's fair criticism, Um, especially when Signal haven't done a great job of answering the why themselves and you think that's what they would bother to do if they said they're trialling something like this. Mm. So, you know, maybe it got a bit ahead of them and uh, it's it's a watch and see, but wouldn't be surprised if that just evaporates after a while. Like like Facebook Libra, hopefully. Well, and that's and that's the news for tonight. <laughs> it is. Triple R. Kath Aubrey is a professor of media and communications and co-program leader of digital participation at Swinburne's Social Innovation Research Institute. It's a mouthful because she's hyper-qualified. She has recently been researching generational and gender-based trends in dating, including how people use emojis. We are keen to know more. Welcome to the show, Kath. 
Hey, thank you. So great to have you. Um, Look, we thought we'd start with the real trivialities that our audience has been tweeting about and that are really keen to know. Um, You have not been looking solely at emojis, so let's just make that clear to people. Uh, Yes, yes, sorry for those who want to. No, that's okay. (laughs) But you've been looking at all aspects of, um, or at various aspects of app-based dating that make people feel safer or less safe. And I think that's something we all care about, you know. None of us would um, would would be able to say we live in a bubble with these sort of things. Everyone we know is um, is doing online dating or has tried online dating these days. So, yeah. when you look at emojis in that context, you know how do people use emojis these days to signal interests or help people feel safe or not safe? And does that vary yeah, across so, different groups? Yeah, we were looking at. Um the ways that people construct their own profile and interpret other people's profiles um, when they're determining whether they're going to match and then when they're working out whether they want to move from uh, the connection in the app to a face-to-face meeting. So for us, emoji was just one part of that entire picture, which included the profile picture and in some cases text underneath, although on some apps there's not so much. Um, and people read a lot, obviously, into a photograph or a, a group of photographs and a very small amount of text on dating apps. And emoji, um, obviously, are symbols that a lot can be read into, and so in our study, people were using emoji as a way of both communicating some subtle um, information about themselves, and this particularly was the case for people who were heterosexual and were trying to be much clearer about their sexuality um, and their interests without attracting homophobic commenters on apps like Tinder where um, you're not always matched with people you intend to match with um, or you're not always seen by the people you exclusively want to be seen by. Um, And also interestingly, some of the heterosexual men in um, our study talked about emoji to uh, uh, use in their profile as a means of communicating their interests in a clearer way. And, and one of the participants in the study felt that he had made better connections on Bumble because of the ways he used emoji in his profile. So they, they weren't used on their own, but they were part of a collective picture that people use to try and express their personality and there are there's other research that we've looked at um that kind of backs up this idea that people are using um emoji both to signal aspects of their personality or their sexuality or to try and establish a connection or a rapport with their matches kath was it is it a language? Are people like, is there kind of, I suppose, an accepted meaning for a particular emoji or something in an image that you put up there that your people are hoping it, uh, that other people are picking up on? Or is it kind of like a cast out and see what happens? I'm just going to put this yeah. particular thing there. Some things are kind of a bit universal. So the rainbow flag or um, the two girls holding hands or the two boys holding hands are pretty much a universal signalling of I'm queer. Um, For people who want to 
either um, buy drugs or take drugs with a partner, the maple leaf, the pill, those kinds of things are pretty clearly understood. Eyebrows being raised here because I think maybe <laughs> yeah. our experience of this has drifted in studio yeah. a little. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I've well, never used that for that. Dating app, sorry. <laughs> part of, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Some people might say that they're part of dating app um, hookup app experience mm. as well, drug uh, emoji. Um, but uh, there are other apps that are probably more open to interpretation. So there is the, the emoji of, you know, what you might call the big pleading eyes. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's such a cute one, the animation <laughs> eye emoji. It is a cute one, and and that's quite often used in a kind of cute way, but it's often also considered to be a very sexual. Um, <gasps> it's emoji. thirsty! Yeah. Oh no, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's like a please, please, please. Kath, I sent that emoji to my niece. This is just <laughs> going to have to change. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. They're not. A, there's no universal meaning to some of these emojis. Um, and obviously the the devil, the smiling devil, is a pretty well understood emoji. Um, and but although you know, as as one of my colleagues in um, at Sydney University said, you know, sometimes you just want to go out and and order tacos and eggplants at a restaurant, and there's nothing <laughs> tough about that at all. Uh, Absolutely, yeah, you the, do. The eggplant taco market has just been completely <laughs> decimated since That's the right, emergency. the eggplant taco platter. So I'm sure <laughs> there'd be some of our listeners who would want to know what does lead to more success here. Um, any tips that have come out of the research? Yeah. we Look, we didn't um, – I, I guess when we were talking about success, for us, it was about people feeling comfortable that they were making a connection. There, ha- there have yeah, been good. some studies. Yeah, there, I mean, there have been some studies that talked about um, people texting each other back and forth or, or chatting um, in in relation to potentially dating, and that in the way that you might mirror body language as you were establishing a rapport with someone that. For some couples, mirroring the emoji, like picking up the emoji that the other person is using and using them back to um, them as part of the dialogue is part of a kind of successful flirtation strategy, which makes sense because the emoji with the, uh, are kind of the substitute for facial cues or gestures that you might not be that able to see. sounds so obvious, that. but I've never thought of it. Mm. That is very sweet. Unless yeah, you're perhaps yeah. misinterpreting what they mean by the emoji <laughs> and you're sending it back yeah, exactly. with a different meaning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there is. There was a quite a large study um, run in the US where they where they did kind of look at um, gender based use of emoji and also use of emoji to flirt. And people did say they they did the mirroring, but they also said that they knew that there were some people who just didn't use emoji and they would drop them if um, it didn't seem to be working with a particular person. They, there are linguists who study emoji as a form of language, so what they call a, a paralanguage, but even they um, can't offer a kind of definitive grammar of emoji. It seems to be very improvisational in most contexts. Um, I 
am curious because you talked about the fact that some of the men in your study thought that they were better understood when they put some icons in that represented their interests. And I think a lot of people may have seen a profile where they've got all different sorts of sports balls and things and a plane for travel and a beer and what have you and then flags of all the countries that this person's visited, presumably. Does that sort of approach seem to have any success? Um, we That didn't come up in our research. There are obviously... and One of the things that did come up in our research, though, was um, the what you might term shaming accounts for people's, people sending in screen caps of other people's profile use. And I haven't seen shaming accounts um, talking about emoji or kind of shaming those streams of emoji, but there are kind of stereotypes of photos on apps that are seen <laughs> to be, um, you know, the, the holding Person a dead holding animal, fish, the holding yeah. a fish, yeah, yeah the <laughs> holding a gun. Next to a um, drugged tiger. That, yeah, that, that, and people did talk in our study about photos and the, the kinds of photos that would be red flags for them. We asked people what would make, what would be a kind of successful profile and what would be a red flag profile. And often people read a lot into photographs. So one guy, for example, um, didn't use drugs, was very anti-drugs, and he wouldn't match with anyone on Grindr who was wearing sunglasses in their profile <laughs> picture because he assumed that was signifying drug use. I don't know whether it was or it wasn't, but I thought it was interesting that, that he interesting. had thought so much about his instincts and his reflexes and what he was doing to try and filter out drug users without people overtly saying on their profile, I'm a drug user, I want to use drugs with you. So so people are reading a huge amount into wow. um, very subtle signals or perceived signals it, on apps. Is, is, that, is that something that um, you think has gone... I suppose pe- people are th- overthinking it, or do you think it's a it's a reasonable thing for someone to have that kind of reaction? I, I'm starting to wonder whether I, sh- I should take the fishing photos off my um, personal <laughs> accounts now. <laughs> that was a beautiful um, kingfish you, you caught, Dan. <laughs> yeah, if you want to attract someone who will go fishing with you, it's probably fine to have a fish there. Um, the the I, th- I think for people, there's a real sense of um, Everyone's on apps. This is the primary place where people are meeting other people. But basically everyone but um, cis-heterosexual men are quite concerned about their safety when they're using apps. They They were the only group in our study who were not concerned about personal safety, although they did have negative emotional experiences associated with app use. Everyone else is well aware of all the warnings about... Um, who you meet on apps and how to stay safe. And they're reading as much as they can into that very small amount of text or, you know, those that image and those extra images, maybe the three or four you get in the profile. And it's why for many people in our study, they were very happy when someone had um, their Instagram, for example, connected to um, their Tinder profile because it gave them a sense that they could in some way verify the person's identity or they could see what their personality was like, make sure they had friends, these kinds of things. And some people even used the Instagram as a kind of two-stage verification. So they would match and chat on the app, 
but they wouldn't actually hook up with the person. These were people who were specifically looking for casual sex, not dates. They wouldn't hook up with the person unless the person messaged them their address from an Instagram account instead of from the app because they felt like the Instagram account was like a second level of verification to prevent catfishing. So people had all of these strategies. Whether any one of them guarantees safety is kind of not really a question that you can answer definitively, but it, it was just really interesting for us to hear about all these strategies that people had developed to try and feel safer in a in a kind of subjective sense. And this this is really fascinating stuff, um, Kath. I'm I'm really curious. It's interesting, you know, that that sort of almost two platform verification process and how mm. that encourages safety. Do you think there are things that the platforms like some of these behaviours that you're identifying, that the platforms either kind of encourage or discourage and create these weird, create these kind of kind of cycles and vortexes of behaviour? Yeah, look, it's, it's really a kind of back and forth process. So the, the platform offers you certain um, features and also responds to what it, it sees users are doing. Your, your behaviour is obviously being tracked constantly on apps, whether or not they're actually reading your messages um, at any given time, it's, you know, you don't know, but they certainly are tracking patterns of behaviour. So if they see that um, people are moving to other platforms from the app, they will, of course, kind of try and track you there if they can. And so the kind of the notion that you might um, connect Spotify in and connect... Um, Instagram in is valuable for them because it gives them more data about you. So they put together a more, you know, kind of complex profile about your your likes and dislikes and this and that. But and and if that also appears to reassure users in relation to safety or the potential of making a good connection, then that would be a win-win for the platform. But I actually have not yet had a conversation with someone from a dating platform who who told me that those features were provided as a safety feature. It seemed to me to be more about um, both building connection but also building networks of, of data collection and aggregation. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's one of the really fascinating things that came out of your research was, was this idea about shame as both a sort of a motivator but also as a, a sort of a self-reflexive learning opportunity and I sort of wanted to follow up that the question about the tech do you yeah, think that sure, sure. do you think that's something that the platforms could be more sensitive to about about that because that's quite a complex learning opportunity do you think there's some there's kind of a something that they could do to improve that opportunity for yeah, learning yeah yeah I mean yeah the, the in the in the research with straight men and it's uh, not just straight men but men who were seeking women so some of them didn't identify as straight but they they dated women as well as um, people of other genders. There was a lot of expression of shame in feeling like you were failing in using the apps or you weren't using them well. And I think some of that is about the dynamic of um, uh, heterosexual dating. And so women are quite self-protective on apps. Um, They're messaged a lot by men or approached a lot by men. And, and they are pretty choosy about who they respond to and they filter pretty carefully. And for the men in our study, 
even if they knew that on an intellectual level, they experienced it as rejection um, and shame. And some men learned from that and handled it well, and other men handled it quite badly and were, you know, admitted that they had been aggressive. And one of our interviewees um, had been banned from OK Cupid. Um, and and I think that, you know, one of the the current um, themes in the discussions around consent, which is obviously a big um, talking point right now, is that it's not enough just to teach people to say no. You have to teach people to hear no and accept no um, and not take it personally, particularly on a thing like a dating app where, you know, a left swipe or a right swipe is so arbitrary or, you know, chatting two sentences with someone and then, you know, finding out, you know, there's no spark or you don't really have anything in common. Like, objectively, you sh of course, you should be able to move on. That's not a rejection. That's not cruel. It's not any of those things. But people take that. In, in our study, people took that very hard at times, um, particularly if they were having other struggles with mental health or they were under stress in other ways and they felt like it was really important to get the validation of the likes or the connections on the app. So it, it's a space where, um, I guess, uh, people developing more repertoires or more language and more emotional resilience uh, uh, around um, relationships and, and negotiation and consent and, and understanding consent is about hearing no, not just saying yes or no. Um, it, it's a space where there's a lot of work that could be done and I think, yeah, apps could help. And a lot of the people um, we spoke to said they would like to see more discussion of consent on apps or more kind of um, tips and coaching around consent. And, and that could definitely involve people um, dealing with the times when they're, they're not matching many people or they're not connecting well with other people and, and you know, yeah, offering some skills or some vocabulary to reflect on that to help people. Um, deal with the mental health impact of that. That's incredibly comprehensive for a topic that can really sound a little bit light when you first hear about it. I think that there's so much that people are curious to explore about how these dating apps might change their behaviours and, and how, you know, it certainly has a huge impact on your life, whether you get these things wrong or right. Uh, if there's one brief tip that you could maybe leave our listeners with about um, feeling safe and making connections online, does anything jump to mind? Uh, yeah, look, there were people in the app almost universally want to feel listened to by the other person they're chatting to and, and to feel like they're not going to be railroaded into anything. Um, and many people were, had very good strategies around how they met up with new people and where they met up with new people and all the standard tips about meet in public the first time, et cetera, et cetera. But um, really, I think the main tip would be about learning other communication skills and bringing your communication skills to the app and not assuming it's a, it's a game where you can kind of level up if you just use the right line or the right thing. 
Um, that is a beautiful note yeah. to end on. And uh, you brought it right back to the apps as well and the gamification of dating. So that's incredible. Hey, we've been speaking with Professor Kath Albury. She's from Swinburne Social Innovation Research Institute. Thanks for speaking with us tonight, Kath. Pleasure. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Jake Goldenfein is a senior lecturer at Melbourne Law School. Uh, He's been a researcher at numerous universities here and overseas in the fields of media and communications, history and theory, intellectual property, communications policy, privacy and media law. Now, um, Jake, we are... uh, here to, uh, Vanessa and Paul are here to have a discussion with you and Dan as well to, um, about uh, something that ha- we came to light a couple of weeks ago around um, the South Australian Liberal Party and a bit of a sneaky redirect that they were doing to their websites from official government websites. Um, I was wondering if you might be able to uh, give us a bit of an explanation as what what was going on there. So it's, it's a little bit difficult to find out exactly what's happening But to me, it appears as if uh, it has been discovered that the South Australian Liberal Party uh, has been using a political platform software called Nation Builder. It's actually very common, and I would say a lot of political parties in Australia are using it. It's been around for about 10 years. It's a really popular um, tool, and... uh, but they wouldn't really admit to it, and it was, and they, and they, they took a very sheepish stance when it became apparent. So the whole thing is a little bit strange. Well, there's definitely evidence that it happened because there are plenty of internet savvy people who shared screenshots of the redirect happening in action. So uh, it's it is undeniable, uh, but it's it is quite amazing what uh, politicians will deny. Mm. So that said, yeah. you know what? Well, that's kind of the thing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but that that is the the, po- the point. The point is that the Australian politicians are so. Uh, Really untruthful and unaccountable with their use of technology, and that's that's at the heart of a lot of these issues. So that that might be the case, but let, let's talk about um, what sort of responsibilities uh, our public service websites uh, purport to have uh, in terms of consumer use, and then you know the handling of of our kind of personal data. Sure. So. Uh, Australia has a uh, Commonwealth level privacy law. It's it's a it's a it's a relatively weak information privacy law compared to other places in the world. But one thing that it probably does do is prevent the existence of a um, like a voter data industry. So that exists in other places in the world, but in Australia, really the only entities that are allowed to have uh, a large amount of voter data. Um, and to process it and disclose it and, and, and work on it are political parties. And this is because political parties have an exemption, like a more or less a blanket exemption under, under the privacy laws, and they also get um, access to the electoral roll. And, and the reason for that exemption is, 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 is so that political parties can communicate to the public. It's, it's, it's a kind of constitutional thing. We don't have constitutional free speech rights in Australia, but we do have this implied freedom of political communication. And that has been interpreted to, 
to to afford political parties um, this exemption from the Privacy Act. So a regular... So, oh, no, please continue. Well, I can, I can talk about um, what that means in terms of them using platforms like Nation Builder, if, if, if you like. Yes, that's really helpful. Right. So, um, th- so uh, these parties then use these software tools, and the software tools are kind of like, kind of like CRMs, like customer relationship management tools. They do a lot of things. You can build your website through them. They manage your databases. You can do all your communication through them. Um, but they also, this one, Nation Builder got in a little bit of strife. Had a scandal recently because one of the things that it offers is to match. Uh, your uh, the the people in your database with their social media information, and what it does is it has this data. It has your database of say voters in this case, but then it also has this little analytics tool that it calls political capital that effectively scores people, you, the people in your database according to how they interact with content that you produce. So this might be things like surveys that you send out, or, or could even be media releases. But it, it incentivizes political parties to release material on social media so that they can then reintegrate uh, the interactions that happen on the platform back into their, into their database. And that helps them target particular people with policy issues and things like that. Um, Jake, it's um, an interesting thing that we're seeing in this particular instance. It was uh, a redirect from a government service provision website. So I think it was the South Australian COVID-19, which is kind of mm-hmm. that, that that's something different from a political party, uh, I suppose, website or a nation builder website, because, you know, a, go- a government service, you know, a disclaimer here, I, I work in the public service and I know that there is mm-hmm. a difference between working as a public servant and working as a political operative. They're very, they're very yep. separate things and they have very separate functions. Is there any... Like what, what are the legal implications when some, something from, you know, a government service website, particularly during COVID-19, when we look, everyone's looking for the, the most up-to-date and relevant information that, you know, can keep them alive, is, yep. re- is kind of taking them to a place where it's trying to scrape their personal data so they can be pitched to by political parties? Well, that you know that that's that's exactly what really shouldn't be happening. So, um, ministers, uh, political staff aren't subject to the same exemption that political parties are, because the the rationale for political parties to have this exemption is effectively, and it's a slightly broader exemption, but it's effectively so they can participate in an electoral process, um, which is really what our implied freedom of political communication is all about. It's there such that we can have democratic elections. That uh, government departments or ministries are, are doing this is, pro- is, is very problematic. And, and one can imagine the reason it happens is because some of the, the website content is generated through the Nation Builder platform that they're using, although that's just speculation. But to me, that seems like the most likely rationale. Um, I, I wanted to sort of come back a little bit to the, the you know, the shapes of the data because it, it sounded to me as though there was a possibility that using this nation builder platform, they're going to aggregate all this data and then potentially do like experiments, like putting things out and seeing how social media people respond. Um, and then, you know, I know we've seen in other countries um, yeah. that use nation builder, we've seen how that's been used to kind of guide the electoral process. Is that something that you think we're... Like, where on the continuum of that do you think we are in Australia? Uh, it's, 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 
very hard to know, and it would I would be I would be speculating. Uh, you know, the the scandal around Cambridge Analytica. Uh, I think people were a bit confronted by the idea that there was a psychological profile pro- profiling going on, and the idea that you could do political micro targeting according to psychological profile, that you could tweak your messaging by colours, shape, font size, all these little things to try and 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 do this A/B testing to get the ideal response. It's, it, it, you know, a lot of that was snake oil, and a lot of that was was also geared at this idea that you could um, actually provoke or you could provoke people into a position of voting or not voting. Now, what's happening in Australia, I think, is a little bit different and probably not as nefarious. And Nation Builder says that they don't do personality computation. Uh, I'm not sure if that's true or not. Um, but I would say that uh, it, there's still a degree of experimentation that's going on with, you know, this is voter profiling. You're trying to identify uh, a group of voters who have the appearance of another group of voters that exists in your database. And you're like, oh, here's a group of people who seem really receptive to this kind of messaging or who we really need to convince on this issue because that's going to swing them in voting our way. Look in my database and tell me who looks like this group. And that's kind of what the whole ad tech industry is based on, and that's what a lot of this is, is based on. But uh, I'm not sure it's Nation Builder itself that's offering the tools to say, you know, if you give them this kind of messaging, they'll respond this way or the other. That's going to be the political consultants who are operating the platform on behalf of the political parties. Yeah, and so one of the questions we always sort of ask on, on Byte is, um, is what can our listeners do to sort of inoculate themselves against or how can they get involved in, in sort of better understanding this or, you know, you know, advocating for this stuff not to happen? What's the, what's the yeah. next step for the general public? Well, that, that's a really important question because I think um, even getting rid of the privacy exemption for political parties isn't the answer here because that's all going to get worked out then by some sort of uh, you know, pop-up that's going to ask for your consent for data to move this way. We actually need to have uh, a conversation as a civil society about how we want some of these new information technologies to participate in our political landscape. So we, we, we haven't had the discussion about uh, the norms of political micro-targeting. We haven't had uh, discussions about um, the norms and the conventions around... Um, you know, persuasion profiling and voter profiling uh, and, and, and the type, new types of activities that these tools facilitate. And governing these tools means, like, actually democratically deciding what we think is okay or not. And what, the way it's working now is that there's this very weak privacy law and we're, we haven't thought enough about, like, how this exemption should work. And so it's just a blanket exemption. That said, there was a really comprehensive report by the Australian Law Reform Commission in 2010 suggesting that we get rid of this um, political uh, party exemption to privacy law, but also putting in place a whole lot of uh, safeguards and, 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 and mechanisms by which the democratic process could still proceed. Jake, thank you so much. I think you've brought a lot of clarity to what was quite a murky issue for a lot of us. Jake Goldenfine is a senior lecturer at Melbourne Law School. We will definitely be looking out for more from you on Twitter. Uh, we have to hear a couple of messages and then we'll be back for the last tiny bit of bite. Thanks, Jake. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. So before we finish up on the show, uh, a quick reminder that uh, this month is Triple uh, R's April Amnesty. Um, and we obviously know that COVID has had an impact on all of us, which includes the station. Um, and while sponsorship income is slowly returning, it's not where it was um, before. So if you are in a position to do so, please consider subscribing or renewing your subscription or making a donation. Every little bit helps at this stage. Uh, and if you do subscribe, you automatically go into the draw to win some of our awesome um, prizes. And for full details uh, on subscribing and donating and what those amazing prizes are, um, head over to triple r.org.au. Ah, ah, ah. Yeah, or or Sorry. Yep. That's all right. <laughs> That's all right. Sounds even better in your accent, Paul. I do love that. Hey, tiniest bit of weird news of the week, Dan, yeah. you found this. I did, yeah, look, um, we were talking a little bit about government websites before and, you know, again, COVID. Uh, the federal government has this, has a really good range of, you know, interesting questions and Q&As about COVID. Um, today they decided that it was important that we needed to know if it is true that COVID-19 vaccines connect me to the internet. Oh. <sighs> I, I I don't even know where to start with that. Let's I'm trying I'm, to debunk that five G oh, you know rumor. Man. It's really a bad sign. It is a bad sign. Look, they do look. They go into the kind of no. I think <laughs> <laughs> just, just so we're clear, the answer to that is no. Um, and that, someone lost a fight about having yeah, that on the website. I, I reckon there was definitely a dare at, at, <laughs> at the Department of Health there. But like seriously, guys, have some common sense. Oh. <laughs> Speaking of which, we spoke to a couple of people who shared tremendous common sense of us this evening, thanks to our guests, Professor Kath Aubrey and Senior Lecturer Jake Goldenfine, and thanks to my fellow hosts, Paul Callahan, Dan Salmon, our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts. 